Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 5th, a Friday. It's lunchtime in San Francisco. And it looks like we have the beginnings of another epidemic on our hands, or at least according to some of the more sensationalist press. We've all now heard of monkeypox 2022. Uh, the Verge has everything you need to know if you want to read about it. Um, apparently, the cases, according to the Detroit News today, they've more than doubled in Michigan, whatever that means. And uh, Joe Biden has declared the monkeypox outbreak a public health emergency. The cultural and sociological implications, of course, of monkeypox uh, are beginning to manifest themselves. New York Times is running a piece about a stranger filming a young woman on a train and uh, TikTok users, she put the film up on TikTok and the TikTok users decided that this young woman had monkeypox. Uh, the cultural implications are also interesting. Ron DeSantis from Florida says he won't declare the, a state of emergency over monkeypox. He talks about facts, not fear, which is very undesantis. Uh, certainly there's probably um, a political agenda, as there always is with a man like that. Um, but there are interesting political and cultural implications of, mon of monkeypox in my home state of California. Apparently, uh, health experts are prioritizing uh, people of color, whatever that means, and I don't know what prioritizing actually means. One person who has done um, a great deal of thinking about not just the science, but the politics and the justice association with uh, diseases like COVID, and I'm not sure if we're even using the right word, disease, COVID and monkeypox, is my guest on the show today, uh, Stephen Thrasher is a longtime uh, uh, Guardian columnist. He's an academic at the university, uh, at Northwestern University, and he has a new book out, uh, The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. Stephen is joining us. It's not a book about monkeypox, but perhaps we might begin there. Uh, Stephen, how does the current hysteria over monkeypox, and maybe some of it is justified, how does it fit into your arguments in the viral underclass, the subtitle of which is the human toll when inequality and disease collide? Well, I think that monkeypox is, uh, it's very much a public health emergency, but like all emergencies, they should be dealt with as calmly as possible because there isn't a lot of benefit from acting from a place of panic. Um, and the things that we're seeing with monkeypox are extremely concerning. They dovetail with a lot of what I'm writing about in the book, um, that we have a you know, population that's already quite vulnerable, that we've known needs certain kinds of help and certain kinds of responsibilities um, that have not been uh, addressed with other with, with things that are already happening. I wrote a piece in Scientific American almost three months ago now saying the Biden administration needed to get ahead on vaccination and they really took a wait and see approach. And so we're seeing the virus circulate uh, much faster than it needed to and, and to start beginning out of control. Uh, one of the I, I'm not deep in the weeds on what's happening in California, 
but a dynamic that we're seeing with monkeypox is quite similar already developing with vaccination that we saw with COVID-19, that certain populations are getting the vaccine faster, uh, that white gay men, and for very good reason, the vaccine should be going to men who have sex with men right now, because that's where the, uh, that's how the transmission is happening and where it's happening right now. Um, but we're seeing in cities that you, they're just having, you know, they're saying we have 60 slots, we have 100 slots, we have 1,000 slots, and it's the people who can sit and type and keep hitting refresh that are getting the appointments. And then we're also seeing um, gay men of means flying around the country to different cities to go get vaccinated. And so we're not seeing, um, the vaccines getting even to the places where they would do the most good because the preliminary research from the CDC already shows that in addition to being concentrated among men of sex with men, two thirds are going to, uh, two thirds of the infections are happening amongst uh, black and Latinx people. Um, so this is a dynamic that we saw in a lot of ways with the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine that existing health disparities, existing economic disparities are coming uh, coming at people uh, in a way that they can't uh, always keep up with and that they need to have, uh, that we need to be very proactive in who we're getting vaccines to. Uh, Stephen, uh, we did a show with frequent guest Robert Pearl. He's quite a distinguished uh, doctor, physician, writer. I did a show last month about how the parallel pandemics of COVID, anxiety, and gun violence are part of the same crisis of American healthcare. Your book, develops that theme, but in a perhaps a, a broader, a, a deeper sense. You talk about uh, this intimate, complicated relationship between inequality and disease. Uh, how did you dig your thesis up, so to speak? Well, I'm very lucky. The, the introduction to my book is actually written by Jonathan Metzl, who wrote a book uh, called Dying of Whiteness. And, and he writes in a lot of ways about, um, about gun violence and about suicide and, and ways that America sometimes takes a collective approach of suicide to healthcare. My thesis came up in writing about the ways that the criminalization of HIV um, is something I've studied for a long time. And, and that shows how in the United States, we're more likely to punish something than to try to treat it. So with um, HIV, we have uh, had times where we, we will prosecute people and throw them in jail rather than doing the things that we know they need to to get to be able to live safely. That's to get the medication, safe housing and resources. But the medications work really, really great. And certain people are not getting them. And, and some people were throwing in jail because they have HIV. Um, and I followed one case where a young man named Michael Johnson got con got arrested and convicted and sentenced to 30 years in prison for HIV transmission. And through that case, which I've now written about for eight years, Johnson finally got after jail after about six years. Um, you know, I've seen many ways that American healthcare just simply doesn't work well uh, and makes for really bad outcomes. And after that was over, I was thinking about how to write the book, um, what kind of book I wanted to make, and that's when COVID-19 happened. And out of that um, process of, of thinking about how to make a book out of it and when this new pandemic was happening, I realized I could use this phrase that I learned while reporting on HIV criminalization called a viral underclass. And the person who originally coined it was talking about when HIV is criminalized, but activists were sort of using it in a different way. And I started to use it as a way to understand how and why it is that the same viruses are dealt with very, uh, the same, very different viruses affect the same people um, even though the viruses themselves might be quite different. And the circumstances might look a little different, but they're actually quite the same. And so I kind of developed this as an analytic to think about why, you know, why am I looking at a map and seeing police violence happening 
in these zip codes. And also HIV is happening in these zip codes. And HIV is advancing to AIDS in these zip codes. And all of it has to do with structural poverty and racism and homelessness and lack of an access to healthcare. Um, but it came into an even clearer focus for me when I started to see in the early COVID-19 pandemic that the infections were happening in those same neighborhoods and the deaths were happening in them the most. And the reason why I tried to use this as sort of an analytic or a theoretical framework is because SARS-CoV-2 and, and HIV actually behave very, very differently. They enter the body differently. They exist on very different time scales. They have very different symptoms and they transmit or don't transmit onward in quite different ways. But I was seeing them happen initially in the, in the same places. And even though COVID is awash throughout the United States, it's everywhere. Where people get sick with it, get, get infected with it by the most and get seriously sick from it and die from it is very, very concentrated in explicit areas. And that's because all these other social factors in the society put people in harm's ways of these pathogens and make them more likely to become infected by them and to die with them, uh, to die from them, even though the viruses themselves might be quite different. Um, and now we're seeing something sort of similar with monkeypox. It's happening in a vulnerable population, uh, men who have sex with men who for a variety of reasons don't have access to good health care. And then even within that, we see an economic and racial disparity uh, in the first wave of it, but if there's not proactive ways of getting the vaccines to those most affected, we'll actually see increasing disparity within that uh, within that demographic of who's protected from it and who's left vulnerable by it. DeSantis, as I said at the beginning, who I'm sure you're no great big fan of, said that um, we need to focus on facts rather than fear. And I wonder if that's his way of arguing against the kind of structural argument that you're making. We did a, um, a show at the height of COVID with a, a writer on crowds, William Bernstein, who argued that the conspiracy, what he called the conspiracy virus, is as dangerous as COVID. Um, do you think that the class that you write about, the viral underclass, are they also more prone to other cultural viruses like the conspiracy virus? Um, I don't think that's necessarily um, a class issue. I mean, there, there are ways that having access to education makes one more or less able to receive information. I would I would argue it's it's political and structural. Certainly, a place like Florida where people are getting bad information. Um, but I'm actually I live in Chicago, but I'm in New York right now, and I lived in New York for a long time. And New York is having an outbreak of polio right now. It's it's getting extremely worrying. Um, I'm and this is not kind of my viral center of study, but I'm trying to learn up on it quickly as I've been doing with monkeypox the past few months. Um, and I realize here actually 14% of children are not vaccinated against polio, so this could actually get bad here. Um, and the origins, which I write about in the book, of the anti-vax movement are actually an upper class. Uh, situation in the United States. It, it started in England with a, a doctor named, or now a disbarred doctor, um, or sorry, I'm forgetting what the medical term is um, in England, uh, a doctor who no longer is, is allowed to practice medicine in England named Andrew Wakefield, who in the 90s had this press conference saying that uh, MMR vaccines, measles, mumps, and rubella caused autism when they were administered together. And that entered the United States in a very upper class way. It, it primarily was coming to um, upper class people in Malibu, uh, white mothers in, in very high earning incomes. And it's it's largely stayed in the 
upper middle class to the upper class. And the dynamics of that are people who are not poorly educated and not poor. What they are susceptible to is a kind of ableist, white supremacist concept that their genes are so superior that they don't need vaccines. And, and we actually look at the economics of uh, vaccination, um, lower income people and working class and middle class are vaccinated at higher rates than, than the upper class. It's the upper class uh, that will start getting very, very anti-vax, not in huge percents. Um, and certainly upper, their upper class people have more access to these things, but they're very susceptible to um, to these conspiracies and to sort of thoughts that their own superiority and their kind of eugenicist place in the world is going to protect them. So I'm not sure that it's only lodged in in the poorly educated. Of course, there are you know, people who, who don't have access to education or information, who don't have linguistic access. I had a successful experience of helping someone, convincing someone to get the vaccine last summer who was um, undocumented and, and didn't speak English well. Uh, and I realized that I knew he took some other medication and, and I kind of tried to figure out why he took that medication, not the vaccine. It was because his doctor had told him to take it. And the vaccines have not largely been part of your experience with your doctor in this country. So there are ways where, you know, people don't have access to medical information or literature. Um, but I would say conspiracies overall, they infect the upper class um, probably as much as anywhere else. And certainly it's well documented when we try to understand where the anti-vax movement came from in the United States. It entered and mostly occupies the upper middle class to the upper class. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation, an interesting issue. Um, in terms of uh, when inequality and disease collide, into, uh, in terms of COVID, um, was, um, were the... The, the unequal in our society, if that's the right way to describe it, were they more susceptible to COVID because they had to work, because they were on the front lines of the disease, whereas wealthier people could stay at home, they could afford to not go into the office, not travel on public transportation? Definitely. So one of the biggest factors when you look at the data of who got infected and why, certainly in that first year, is whether or not they work from home. People who work from home were, were highly structurally protected. Um, you know, they're not 100% immune. Not everyone works at home. Is the, they're not the only person in their households. Some other people might come or go. Um, but if you were working from home, that was an enormous predictive factor of how you, whether or not you would get the virus, and certainly you were much, much less likely to die from it if you were able to work from home. Um, compared to bus drivers in, in New York City, bus drivers were initially among the, those who died the most, public school teachers, uh, many of whom, even though schools went remote, there were many public school teachers who were still holding uh, some kind of role in schools where children of essential workers or quote unquote essential workers were going during the day. Um, so that's something that happened uh, a lot during the pandemic. Uh, and then when you look at certain studies of, of who was most at risk, healthcare workers had risk, obviously, and many died in the beginning, but they also had um, in well-resourced medical settings, you know, good personal protective gear. Those who had regular and guaranteed access to good PPE uh, did, did very well, while those who were in places that did not did not do as well. But the jobs that people had that made them the sickest were actually not healthcare workers, line cooks, um, restaurant workers, retail workers, people who are face-to-face, not medical settings in places with bad ventilation, and they were and continue to be the most likely to get sick. 
much more compared to people who work at home, who are, to my surprise, a lot of office workers are still working at home a, a great deal, even though the rest of society is kind of just turned on as if there's no problem. In your book, you, you make some comparisons, not just with other diseases, um, but with um, Black Lives Matter, for example. Do you think that one of the reasons why this is such a complicated an explosive issue is because in, in many ways it gets to the heart of the contradictions or the 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 lies of American democracy about equality and equality of opportunity. Yeah, um, viruses, I think, really force us to confront the the myths and the lies that we have about our own society. And the United States is largely predicated on an idea of itself as being amassed by all these individuals who have no responsibility to one another and are each focusing on their own destiny. Um, and the viruses show us that we're very, very connected to one another and they force a certain kind of collective action to be able to survive them. And so that's one of the reasons why the United States is the world leader in COVID cases. It's the world leader in COVID deaths. We're now the world leader in monkeypox cases. I think there's a there's an interesting flip I haven't worked through. I don't work through this in the book. I haven't worked through it in anything else I've written fully, but I'm certainly starting to see a difference in the history of infectious disease where we've long seen these colonial pathways having a predetermining factor for bad outcomes. And certainly with HIV, the, the virus I've studied the most, even though European colonialism is over formally, you could really see in former colonial powers, HIV uh, wreaks havoc in the ways it, it, so do influenza, so do other viruses, but certainly I've seen it the most with HIV, where in the you know global north, the countries that were colonizing, you see far lower rates of the overall, even within the societies, there are concentrations you know, in the society. The United States um, has overall a much lower rate of HIV and AIDS, or certainly did in the late 90s, early 2000s, than countries in sub-Saharan Africa that hadn't gotten medication yet. Um, even as we have uh, pools of HIV inside our country, such that if black gay men in, in the South of the United States were our own country, it would be the worst rate in the world. But overall, the former colonizing countries did better than the colonized countries. And with COVID-19 and also with monkeypox, there's been like this flip that I don't quite know how to process yet, where the rates are relatively low. Um, that with monkeypox, there are ten countries in West Central Africa where it's been endemic because there's animal reservoir for a long time. Um, but overall, the the rates around the African continent actually are, are still pretty low for monkeypox, but relatively low overall for COVID nineteen, as they have been for a lot of Southeast Asia and former colonizing countries. But then when you look at the maps where COVID is just running rampant, it's Spain, Germany. Portugal, the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, you know, the countries themselves that have been sort of the colonial powers. Um, and I'm not quite sure why that is, but it is certainly shifted in these last two epidemics um, from very from very common patterns with previous pandemics. You've done a great deal of thinking, Stephen, about the history of AIDS. Um, we did a show a couple of years ago with a writer called Emily Bass, uh, uh, about uh, AIDS to end the plague, America's fight to defeat AIDS in Africa. It's an interesting book. Um, have American 
Is there a contradiction, perhaps a degree of hypocrisy in the way American policymakers treat, quote unquote, Africa versus parts of uh, America which are poor? In other words, the way in which American policymakers treat their own viral underclass rather than, shall we say, the international viral underclass? Certainly. And it, it doesn't always cut in the same direction. So with HIV and AIDS, uh, the United States was a country where these really great drugs were developed and they were available starting in 1996. They didn't make it to Africa until 2002, three, four, depending on the country, somewhere around there. Um, so in one way, they're very neglectful. But then by that time, George W. Bush was in, off, in office, and I am a huge critic of his domestically and of his foreign policy. But you know, when I talk to many of my counterparts doing AIDS research um, in Africa, they're, they're very fond of George W. Bush because he was the president that had PEPFAR, the president's emergency plan for AIDS, I forget the R's research, um, that did make a lot of these drugs available in other parts of the country. And I'm sorry, in other parts of the world. Um, in the United States, we had this dynamic where there was a lot of buy-in, cross-class, cross-racial uh, within the gay community about AIDS. And then 96 happened, and the uh, to be very crude and blunt about it, the richer, whiter gays got the medications and they became politically involved. They took their political capital, went home, and lived their lives. And for the people who stayed, the focus really became international there for a variety of reasons, including one I think you were hinting at, that in some ways it's easier for a country to think about poverty and deal with poverty in other places than to deal with it at home. So the United States started giving a lot of money to deal with AIDS in other parts of the world, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. All of that was predicated still upon the sale of these drugs. It wasn't predicated upon breaking the patents or just saying, you know, everyone go make the pills around the world and, and treat your people as you see fit. Um, it was still very much about withholding the patents and a lot of that aid circulated to countries and then came back to the United States in the form of payments for drugs that um, a handful of drug companies were uh, benefiting from. Um, but for the most part, a, a lot of AIDS interests moved overseas and thinking about AIDS in Africa, AIDS in Southeast Asia. At the same time, AIDS was becoming a more and more black disease here in the United States. And I found, I was really, really um, uh, shocked when I was looking through CDC statistics over the racial disparities over the years and saw that they were growing. It was about proportionately black people about three times more likely to have AIDS than white people at the beginning of that epidemic, um, pandemic. Then by 96, when the drugs came out, it was a six to one disparity. But the last year I saw good data on it was about a nine to one disparity. And it was really disheartening and shocking to learn that in 2015 or 16, uh, about 20 years after the drugs had become available, the proportional rate of people who had AIDS who were Black in the United States was higher than it ever had been for white people before there were drugs. So even with no medications for white America, they were never as affected by AIDS as Black America is 20 years after there, there are these drugs. Um, and that has to do a lot with the, the neglect and the racism within the United States. But in some ways, it also has to do with the way that AIDS activism and research in the United States look to other parts of the country, look to other parts of the world. Um, my friend and colleague and mentor, Linda Villarosa, has a wonderful book out right now called Under the Skin, 
um, she wrote about in the New York Times Magazine that if Black gay men were in a country in the South in the United States, it would have we would have the highest rate of HIV of anyone in the world. Um, so sometimes I think it's even it's sometimes not even so helpful to think about just the United States as one entity. We have wildly different access to health and wealth within the country. And the situation with AIDS got very, very bad. Um, I think there's there's been some market improvement in the past few years, but certainly by the mid 2000s, by the mid 2010s, the situation in terms of who was needlessly getting sick, infected with HIV, sick from AIDS, and then um, dying was needlessly happening too often in the United States, even as the U.S. was giving a fair amount of aid to other countries in the world. Stephen, uh, in the COVID age, I interviewed another Chicago academic, Laura Kittner. She may even teach at the same university as yes. you do. Yes, she's uh, also she a had a, a, It's a very amusing book, Love in the Time of Contagion, a diagnosis, a story, um, narrative about how COVID has reshaped our concepts of dating, love, and sex. Very much written from a, 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 an upper-class academic point of view. How does love and dating and sex, how does that play itself out in the viral underclass argument that you make in your book? Um, I think that that queer love is a really good teaching tool for all of humanity in these situations. And I owe so much of my my life, you know, my political life, my creative life, but also all of us who've been vaccinated for COVID-19 owe a great deal to AIDS activists in the 1980s and 90s, because uh, on one level, they, they did so much work politically to make it so that vaccines could be developed quicker. That's one of the reasons why we have them uh, and got them in a year instead of 10 years. But they also laid out the ways that we try to still remain connected to one another, even in these very difficult times and even with viruses. And some, I mean, largely, I'll say it, HIV can be dealt with a bit more um, concretely than COVID because COVID also involves breath. Um, but the ways that gay people learn to maintain intimacy and make us understand that it's uh, it's important and worth fighting for has had real benefits in COVID and also with monkeypox. And I just had a piece in The Guardian this week. I'm not a, a columnist there anymore, but I write once or twice a year. And I just had a piece this week about monkeypox. And, you know, to, to be a bit personal, as I am in the piece, many gay men like myself have been feeling a sense of whiplash in trying to... Yeah, find and the title it. of the book, I don't know if this was your title, Is Sex Worth the Risk? Uh, yes. I didn't choose the title, but I trust the editor. Um, and the editor is... And that quote is from my favorite person I interviewed in that uh, anthropologist in Dublin named Thomas Strong. And it's a great question. You know, is sex worth the risk? And I, the interview I had with him, I've been talking to Thomas for years. He lives openly with HIV. He's now quarantined with monkeypox. Um and he thinks really capaciously about viruses. And he said something in that interview that was so stark to me. So you know, the question is, is sex the risk? Because we know the economy is worth the risk. You know, the, the United States has just said, yeah, the to keep the economy chugging along, it's, it's totally fine for people to take that risk, but is sex still worth it? That's the thing that we're meant to feel bad about. And I grew up in the, I was born in 77, so by the time that I was um, five, six, seven, eight years old, and even at all sort of consciously aware of sexuality, I was also aware of Ryan White dying of AIDS, who was a, a teenager who had AIDS and kind of the, the most famous face with AIDS in, 
the country. And so like, even as I first had my own understanding of, of sex and of ideas about gay sex, I also knew that, that gay sex could lead to death. Even though Ryan White actually wasn't gay, he and got HIV through a blood transfusion, my total understanding of sexuality as a child coming up um, was fused with an idea about AIDS. And so it took me a long time and I think a lot of therapy to let go of some of that. Um, and then I felt really empowered by this drug called PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which, which is a drug that you can take if you're HIV negative and it, and it will keep you from becoming HIV positive. And it's been a real game changer for a lot of us in being able to not worry and be able to experience intimacy without so much terror and concern. Um, and then, you know, there was the whiplash of COVID-19 that if you were single as I was, you know, it, it became very hard to connect with other people over long periods of time through the COVID-19 COVID pandemic. Then we got very excited for vaccines and we got vaccines last you know, last year and got vaccinated. Then we could be together again. Now there's monkeypox that we can't be together again. Um, and it's, it's a really difficult thing to navigate uh, intimacy in these times. I think it was for everyone. And in particular, my general sense is that people like me who are single suffered a lot in the pandemic people with families who were in spaces too small suffered a lot in the pandemic. The people I know who did the best lived with other humans, but in spaces big enough where you could you know, get a little space to yourself, um, where you were quarantined and had a backyard and could go outside without too much worry. Um, but it's been a really difficult thing to navigate intimacy in these times. And that's where I think the history of queer sexuality and the ways that queer people and trans people have found each other and found ways to get connected um, outside of the restriction of viruses, even under the restriction of homophobia and uh, gay lives being illegal. You know, they've, they've, we have still found ways to find one another and connect. And the generation before me found ways to do that, even at the height of AIDS. And COVID has given us, you know, I don't, I don't like to romanticize viruses too much or valorize them for people who lost loved ones to them. Um, but I do have this feeling at times that we are extraordinary, lucky is not the right word. We have an extraordinarily unique opportunity that certainly the whole globe hasn't confronted since 1918 um, to confront this reality that they're putting in front of us. And it's a challenge and an opportunity to figure out how we still find each other under these conditions. And that finding each other really depends upon collective community and care uh, and doing things in concert with one another. You may not feel like you're susceptible to polio, but somebody else's child is. And so that's a reason to vaccinate, vaccinate your kids. You may feel fine, but um, I had my book launch the other night and we were all masked and vaxxed and everyone wearing high quality masks. We had high quality masks to give to people who didn't have them. Um, like that allowed us to be together. And But it's something we all had to do together. And so I think the viruses teach us that if we want to maintain intimacy with one another, we can, but we're going to have to be very creative. And gay life and trans life has given us lots of things to learn from and, and how to do that. Finally, Stephen, let's go back to this issue um, of whether or not policymakers should be prioritizing people of color or what you, I, I mean, I'm not sure if it's just people of color, what, what you call the viral underclass during these outbreaks of epidemics, which unfortunately probably going to become more and more of a central feature of life in the 21st century. Does there need to be a profound rethinking of health policy in, in the age of epidemics in terms of 
prioritizing uh, what you call the viral underclass? Or do we need more structural reforms or both? Well, we need both. And so you know, the the thing that I am I allude to and, and point to in my book that I'm not an expert in myself is that climate change is, is the bigger catastrophe in which this is happening. Um, there was a big study in Nature that was just published a couple of weeks ago about how the rising climate is uh, changing the migratory patterns of bats, which is really bad because uh, you know, the coronavirus probably came from bats. And as the climate crisis heats the earth, it's pushing more living things onto smaller parts of the globe. So we're going to have more interactions between species and likely more of what are called zoonotic jumps when a virus moves from a non-human animal to a human or a human animal. Um, and so climate change, that's you know one of the big structural things. We And we need to be really attuned, not just in terms of viruses, but to think about like who is that affecting? Here in the United States right now, UPS drivers are have been showing out, and if you've seen this on social media, um, screenshots of, of thermometers, and their trucks are getting up to 130 degrees. Um, and so they're the people that are most in the pathway of of the climate crisis. They were also among the people who are most in the pathway of the viral crisis with COVID-19. And so we can't sort of have the middle class and the upper class and the ruling class sitting at home and air conditioning and safe from viruses while uh, servants are sent to go do our errands in the heat and among the viruses. At the very least, they must be protected. I do believe in a very proactive approach to health equity to go um, to go to where transmission and viruses are happening. And uh, part of the reason, there are kind of two different ways I think about this. One is we have clear data about who is affected and who's getting help and who isn't. So in Chicago, where I live most of the year, there was a project that was every day showing who's getting who's getting COVID, who's getting sick from hospitalized for COVID, who's dying of COVID. It's all on the cell side. You could see this by zip code um, who was being you know affected and dying, and who's getting the most vaccines. It was on the north side, and the north side, you know, which which are white middle class people, they were easily getting vaccines. They could sit on the computer all day and put in refresh. They could go get the vaccine at two in the afternoon from their salary job, where the poor people on the south side are not getting. And so I think both at a technical level, because the exact same problems happening now with monkeypox, both in Chicago and in New York, that there'll be clinics on these places. But if the city makes you come to them or the government makes you come to them, it's going to perpetuate these uh, these ongoing uh, inequalities. So, you know, if a person on the north side is just hitting refresh all day and they can see that there is a clinic on the south side amongst all black people and they can make an appointment there, they'll just go down there. And Chicago at one point, I, I think, did something very good where they just did it by zip codes. They said, this is a zip code. We have a mobile clinic in this place and people who live in this zip code can go to this place. And I think that's much better um, than making it so that someone on the north side goes down there, someone could fly in from another city and go there, which we've seen happen with both of these. And we need to get, um, you know, we, we need to make sure that the people living there are getting these vaccines. But it's a it's it's frustrating in the general American context that we're always going to them. You know, my friends in, in England, both who dealt with COVID and who are now dealing with monkeypox, either the NHS just calls you and tells you that you when you're coming, you know, when you can come in. That happened with COVID. And they did it by age down. And they also looked at places where it was happening the most and, and prioritized that way. Um, but with monkeypox now, my friends who are gay, they just call their gym. It's called a surgery in England. You know, 
like your doctor's office, they call their local surgery and they say they're eligible and then they'll just tell them, okay, you know, you come in on 7th of September. There's no like hitting refresh. There's no trying to game the system or where you go. They just deal with it. Um, but an analogy I found really helpful for thinking about how and why we give vaccines to certain people or resources when there's an outbreak is that we share one collective body. And and I've seen straight people who are like getting very worried about monkeypox. They're, they're not likely to be contracting it. We know how it's moving and who it's affecting right now. Um, and so I think thinking of our public body as a body, it's like if you cut yourself deeply on your foot, you're going to use antibiotic solution and bandage your foot. You're not going to use that solution on your elbow. Uh, you, you, and you want to do it on your foot because it's going to help the foot heal. But also, you don't want your whole body to get gangrene and everyone to get sick. And so that, I think, is kind of an approach that we should have when we, you know, some of the epidemics I'm aware of right now, there's an epidemic of meningitis moving amongst gay men in Florida. That's the population you deal with. With monkeypox, it's happening also among men who have sex with men across the country. That's where you want to deal with it. We're also like rapidly becoming an unvaccinated country for COVID because 70% uh, of the country has not received a booster um, past the date which they should have had one. And so effectively, 70% of the country is now not vaccinated fully against COVID-19. And so there's a place where we should really be starting with nursing homes and dealing with the most vulnerable and people who are disabled and making sure that they're getting vaccines, that the government's getting to them and not making elderly people figure out how to get this thing that the government um, is not being as proactive as they were with the initial series of boosters, uh, the, the initial series of vaccines. Important stuff in Stephen Thrasher's new book, The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Clyde. It's really important book. It's, a, it's, a, it's an argument that uh, he's been making now for a while in his columns. It's, I think it's going to be one of the, the major books of the year. Congratulations, Stephen, on the new book, first book. Um, what else have you been reading these days? Anything interesting that you would recommend to our viewers and readers? Yeah, um, there's a wonderful book by um, Hugh Ryan um, called The Women's House of Detention. I'm doing a talk with him sometime in the fall. And he's, like a, he's kind of a gay historian, and he's written about uh, a women's prison that was here in New York City, right in the middle of Greenwich Village. Of course, amongst houses that now go for millions and millions of dollars, but right in the heart of Greenwich Village, there was this women's prison, and it's a fantastic um, social history. The novel I read that, that frightened me and entertained me the most is called, recently came out, I think, maybe two years ago, but I just read it a couple months ago, called Leave the World Behind. Um, and it's a story of a couple that goes into an Airbnb in the country and something terrible happens. I don't want to give anything more. But to me, it's actually the best analogy of what's happening in the United States right now with COVID, with our multiple epidemics and our just ability to not quite perceive what's happening. Um, I really love Song of Achilles uh, by Madeline Miller, which came out also like 10 years ago, but had a book TikTok um, explosion that, that brought it onto the New York Times bestseller list. It's a, a writing of the story of Achilles with really, really beautiful language. Um, and I recently read a Murakami novel, uh, After Dark. I think it was the only one of his I hadn't read yet that was very pleasurable on my sort of week of vacation I gave myself before my book came out. 
Um, but there's lots of great stuff coming out right now. Linda Villarosa's Under the Skin is fantastic. It's a book called Health Communism, that's the death panel podcast people have coming out. I've been reading the gallery of that's wonderful. Um, so yeah, lots and lots of really wonderful things. I've also kind of been immersing myself in the writings of David Graeber, who died, um, I think, within the past year, and trying to catch up on the enormous body of work he left in his too short time on Earth. 